This episode contains spoilers for the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde. It also includes mentions of violence and sexual assault, which might be disturbing for some listeners. I'm Megan, and I'm studying history and film at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, and you're listening to Lens on History. In this episode, we're discussing Arthur Penn's 1967 film, Bonnie and Clyde, first examining its historical accuracy and context, and then delving into its deeper implications. Thanks for joining me as we look through this lens on history. This here is the stick up, and we're the Barrow Gang. I'm Clap Barrow, this here is Bonnie Parker. Don't mess with Bonnie and Clap. Watching about Bonnie and Clyde They were driving down a back road The old green Bonnie and Clyde Hove and B, holla 97 Bonnie and Clyde, me and my daughter Just the two be a bumpy ride Thanks to Bonnie Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow are one of American history's most notorious couples. As you just heard, their lives have inspired numerous movies and TV shows, a Broadway musical, and too many songs to count. Arthur Penn's 1967 film adaptation is arguably the most notable incarnation of their story. It takes its viewer alongside Bonnie and Clyde, played by Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, from their first meeting to their gruesome death. They gleefully rob banks, steal cars, and kill people. But they're also weighed down by the bleakness of the depression, the realities of life on the run, and their dawning awareness of their own mortality. When it came out in 1967, Bonnie and Clyde was polarizing, to say the least. Some, like the New York Times' Bosley Crowther, who wrote multiple scathing reviews, were appalled at its obscene violence and casual sexuality. Others praised the film and Penn's innovative style. The film also played an instrumental role in bidding farewell to the movie industry's production code and ushering in the less restrictive, more provocative, New Hollywood era. So how does Bonnie and Clyde reflect the lives of these historical figures, and how did it go on to shape history in its own way? Let's take a look. This year's Miss Bonnie Parker. Glad to meet you. I'm Clyde Barrow. We rob banks. I think probably the main question we all have watching this movie is, what were the real Bonnie and Clyde like? How accurate is the movie in terms of portraying these characters? Both Bonnie and Clyde were born in Texas, Bonnie in Rowena in 1910, and Clyde outside of Dallas in 1909. Both of their families were quite poor. When the two met and fell in love in January of 1930, Bonnie was working as a waitress, something which the film acknowledges. What the film doesn't include, though, is that she was already married to a Mr. Roy Thornton imprisoned for murder, whom she would never see again. Clyde, like Bonnie's first love, had also already brushed with the law. He had been arrested several times for crimes such as robbing a store and failing to return a rental car. Not long after they met, Clyde was arrested again and sent to jail, The film references this, 
although Warren Beatty's Clyde has already been paroled when he meets Faye Dunaway's Bonnie. That tidbit he mentions, though, about chopping off his toes so he wouldn't have to do hard labor? It's true. And Clyde's life in prison was also difficult in ways the film doesn't show. After he escaped once, using a gun that Bonnie had smuggled to him, he was put behind bars again, where it's believed he was repeatedly sexually assaulted. And he ended up killing his rapist. This was his first murder. Those who knew him said that Clyde entered prison one man and left it a different one. Once free, Clyde joined Bonnie, and they began their life of crime in earnest. The movie suggests that they were motivated by the hard times of the 30s and a desire to get back at the banks that were seizing people's homes. Other sources suggest that, after prison, Clyde had a vendetta against the police, and Bonnie was too in love not to join. And still others, including W.D. Jones, a member of the Barrow Gang, posit that Clyde would have rather robbed than worked. No matter the reasons behind their lawlessness, the couple was left with no choice after they killed J.N. Butcher, a store owner, during a robbery. They were now wanted for murder. There could be no return to normal life. Instead, they were doomed to run from the cops until their inevitable deaths. As the film suggests, Bonnie and Clyde committed an interesting array of crimes. Yes, they stole cars, but... Their other robberies were quite small for such big-name criminals. The Barrow Gang mainly stole from grocery stores and small-town banks, collecting food and just enough money to maintain their lifestyle. They never really attempted anything more impressive. Yet, on the other hand, they also murdered many police officers, as well as grocery store clerks and other civilians. And Clyde and his brother Buck were also accused of raping a woman in Arkansas. Where their real skill lay, though, was not in robbery, but in evading the law. Clyde could shoot his way out of almost any situation, and this was something he prided himself in. In a telegram to the Dallas district attorney denouncing his former companion Raymond Hamilton, Clyde wrote, If he was half as smart as me, the officers couldn't catch him either. In spite of their talents, so to speak, Bonnie and Clyde rarely worked alone. The members of the actual Barrow Gang fluctuated as people got arrested or killed, but in the movie, the character of C.W. Moss, Bonnie and Clyde's henchman and auto mechanic, almost never leaves their side. Hey, you good driver, boy? Yeah, reckon I am. No, he's better off here. What's your name, boy? C.W. Moss. So who was this C.W. Moss? What role did he play in the Barrow Gang in real life? The truth is, the person of C.W. Moss never existed outside of Benton and Newman's script and Arthur Penn's film. In reality, he's a composite of two men who ran with the Barrow Gang at various points, W.D. Jones and Henry Methvin. W.D. Jones was 17 years old and a friend of L.C. Barrow, Clyde's younger brother, when he joined the couple on the road. He initially intended to keep watch for them for one night, but the next day, he was sitting in a stolen car with Clyde when the outlaw shot the owner, a man named Doyle Johnson, in the face. According to Jones, Clyde told him, Boy, you can't go home. You got murder on you, just like me. And just like that, W.D. Jones was running from the law. Although he was later arrested and accused of the murder of a police officer, 
Jones survived Bonnie and Clyde, dying in 1974. He even saw the 1967 film and offered his thoughts in an article for Playboy magazine. Apparently, Faye Dunaway's portrayal of Bonnie was fairly accurate, but Warren Beatty's Clyde talked too much. And C.W. Moss? Well, Jones definitely saw himself in the character. He agreed that he was a dumb kid who ran errands and did what Clyde told him. But he didn't drive the getaway car much, like Moss. According to Jones, Clyde was the best driver in the world. Neither of them were much of a mechanic either. Instead, they just steal yet another car whenever they needed it. Where Jones felt the character of C.W. Moss was most untrue to him was at the end of the film, when Moss knowingly lets Bonnie and Clyde drive into the police ambush that would cost them their lives. In real life, W.D. Jones was long gone from the gang at that point. The couple's real betrayers were Henry Methvin and his father. Henry Methvin had joined the Barrow Gang in January of 1934 when they freed him, Raymond Hamilton, and three others from Eastham State Prison Farm, where Clyde had been incarcerated previously. Methvin had been serving a 10-year sentence there, and he joined Bonnie and Clyde for the remaining few months of their crime spree. While with the Barrow Gang, he was involved in the murder of a constable from Oklahoma, for which he would later be imprisoned again. At the time, though, his father was desperate for him to not face consequences. Like C.W.'s father in the film, Ivan Methvin worked with the FBI and Texas police to help set a trap for Bonnie and Clyde in exchange for a pardon for his boy from the state of Texas. It's unclear how much Henry knew about his father's plan, but it was enough to ensure that he was not in the car when the two outlaws unknowingly sped down the road towards the cocked and loaded guns of the law. So, we know that the final ambush, as shown in the movie, remains fairly true to what actually happened. Sure, there were a few small details that were different. Clyde didn't actually get out of the car. They were rumored to be eating sandwiches, not a pear. But they did pull over to help Ivan Methvin with his car. And, before they could reach for their guns, Bonnie and Clyde, and their now iconic car, were riddled with bullets, which killed them in a matter of seconds. While the film doesn't show some parts of Bonnie and Clyde's crime spree across the south-central U.S., like the Eastham State Prison Raid, it gets a lot of the details right. In addition to the protagonist's deaths, some of the most pivotal scenes, like the ambush at Platte City Tourist Court, also happened in real life in much the same way they do in the film. Buck was indeed fatally wounded and Blanche blinded that night. Both were captured while Bonnie and Clyde escaped. One of the most important aspects of Bonnie and Clyde's story that the film acknowledges is not actually a robbery attempt or a police ambush, but the more abstract fact of their celebrity. During the 1920s and 30s, America had a gangster problem, but it also had a gangster obsession. That money's blood money and we want no part of it. Hide behind my skirts like always. Better than hiding behind a machine gun. Mother of mercy. Is this the end of Rico? Hey, look, Jim. If I can't live the way I want, then at least let me die when I want. People were, yes, a little terrified of criminals like John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, and, of course, Al Capone. But that terror also fed their curiosity. The same was true in regards to Bonnie and Clyde. They might not have had the glamour of a mob boss, 
but the fact that they were seemingly ordinary people made them all the more intriguing. And Bonnie and Clyde had something going for them that no other outlaw or gang did. They were in love. People loved hearing about the exciting exploits of outlaws, things that the average person would never get to experience. But Bonnie and Clyde's affair made their already seductive adventures all the more romantic. And the media of the day, particularly newspapers, certainly played their role in glamorizing the stories of the Barrow Gang. They didn't just report on all their robberies. They did so as if they were writing the next great American crime novel. The New York Times described the Eason State Prison Rescue almost with admiration. Clyde Barrow used a withering blast of machine gun fire. It continued, The spectacular delivery was so perfectly executed that the fugitives were lost quickly in a heavy fog. The papers also eagerly published any photos of the gang they could get their hands on. These photos were often left behind by the Barrows in their hideouts. One iconic one, of Bonnie pointing a gun at Clyde, was published with the caption, Bonnie's in a gun-playful mood. Bonnie Parker, Southwest Gunmole, known as Suicide Sal, was in a playful mood when this picture was snapped. This perception of the couple continued for much of their multi-year rule of south-central United States. Public passion died down, however, about a month before Bonnie and Clyde's death as a result of the grapevine murders. The killer couple had brutally shot two young state troopers for whom public sympathy, already aroused, was all the more increased when the fiancé of one of the troopers wore her wedding dress to his funeral. This was the first time a warrant for Bonnie's arrest, in addition to Clyde's, was issued. When Bonnie and Clyde were killed in Louisiana a month later, though, it seemed as if many people forgot about the grapevine murders as they remembered the two outlaws. The obsession was back with full force. Newspapers across the country dramatically imagined the duo's final moments. The Tampa Tribune described the law-mocking desperado whizzing along the road. They continued, Barrow's car, running wild, careened from the road and smashed into an embankment. As the wheels spun, the posse continued to fire until the car was almost shot to pieces. The Des Moines Tribune emphasized their romance and glamorized their misdeeds. Clyde Barrow and his sweetheart Bonnie Parker, who combined their talent for crime and ran up a tally of a dozen murders in the Southwest, met death Wednesday, as Bonnie had predicted they would. The article continued, For once Barrow and his aide were on the receiving end of the leaden hail. They died quickly, Bonnie with her machine gun cuddled in her lap. For some, though, these written descriptions wouldn't be good enough. As the police towed Bonnie and Clyde's car, riddled with bullet holes, into town, thousands of onlookers crowded around, hoping for a glimpse of the famous gangsters. Some got more than a glimpse, reaching out to touch the two, or clipping off pieces of their clothes and locks of hair. Some even tried to cut off body parts, with one man's knife reaching for Clyde's trigger finger. A few days later, the Louisiana town had almost tripled in population, as crowds gathered for the separate funerals of Bonnie and Clyde. And according to an article in the Salt Lake Tribune, the crowds were louder at Bonnie's funeral than at Clyde's. And I think this fits with why Bonnie and Clyde were so popular. Bonnie especially fascinated people. They were used to young men terrorizing towns and robbing banks. For a young woman to do so made these actions seem in some ways more innocent and in some ways even more devious. Bonnie the gunmole 
was glamorous and exciting and novel. The film doesn't show this final part of Bonnie and Clyde's story. It ends when their lives end, but it recognizes the glamour and celebrity of the two outlaws. And the fact that it is itself a major motion picture about their lives means that it simultaneously preserves this aspect of their story, this history, and becomes a part of it. Yes, the actual content of the film notes the role of media in mythologizing Bonnie and Clyde. There's the montage of Bonnie reading her poem and then it being read from the newspaper in which it was printed. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. You know what you done there? You told my story. You told my whole story right there, right there. One time I told you I was gonna make you somebody, that's what you done for me. You made me somebody they're gonna remember. The film itself played into the stardom of the two figures by casting two Hollywood heartthrobs. Arthur Penn acknowledged this, saying, I suppose that we could be charged with romanticism, perhaps, and having beautiful people play Bonnie and Clyde, but I think we were justified in that we were dealing with the mythic aspects of their lives. The film also brought their story to theaters across the U.S. and, eventually, to the Academy Awards. Girls started dressing like Bonnie and boys like Clyde. The production team also capitalized on the idea that romance, coupled with criminality, would add intrigue, just as it had for the real Bonnie and Clyde, by marketing the film with the tagline, They're young, they're in love, and they kill people. And, perhaps most importantly, the movie was responsible for cementing the couple in cultural memory as the inseparable duo under the one name of Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde, almost as if it's one word. Previously, they had mainly been referred to as Clyde and Bonnie, or Clyde and his gunwoman, or simply Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker. The 1967 film made Bonnie and Clyde into bigger, more glamorous stars than they ever could have dreamed of. So, I suppose the question that arises from this is, is this okay? Do we really want to be glorifying criminals and glamorizing their violence? This feels like a bit of an odd question to pose, though, because, by today's standards, Bonnie and Clyde really isn't that violent. Our TV screens are full of violence, we root for heroes as they shoot off rounds of bullets and blow each other up. In 1967, though, Bonnie and Clyde was groundbreaking. It has scenes where characters are shot in the face point-blank, and it has the final ambush where blood pours out of Bonnie and Clyde's bodies as they are blown to bits. Will Hayes' production code, which for decades had heavily regulated the levels of violence and sex that movies were allowed to show, was beginning to crumble at the end of the 60s but studio heads and moviegoers alike still expected to see a certain level of morality on screen. And so, some critics and audience members hated Bonnie and Clyde. Famed New York Times reviewer Bosley Crowther, whose career quickly disintegrated after he panned the film, wrote, It is a cheap piece of bald-faced slapstick comedy that treats the hideous depredations of that sleazy, moronic pair as though they were as full of fun and frolic as the Jazz Age cut-ups in thoroughly modern Millie. This blending of farce with brutal killings is as pointless as it is lacking in taste, 
since it makes no valid commentary upon the already travestied truth. Many readers, though, sent in letters criticizing Crowther's review and defending the film. Arthur Penn also defended his choices, noting that the troubles with the violence in most films is that it is not violent enough. A war film that doesn't show the real horrors of war, bodies being torn apart and arms being shot off, really glorifies war. Penn also emphasized the importance of recognizing the context of the Great Depression in regards to Bonnie and Clyde's story. He argued that the times were out of joint. It was in the midst of the Depression, banks were closed. A time creates its own myths and heroes. If the heroes are less than admirable, that is a clue to the times. So who's right? I don't think there's necessarily one right answer, and you might have your own entirely different opinions. There's definitely something to be said for not becoming desensitized to what we're seeing on screen, and that applies to just about everything. Film is meant to be an experience that engages our brains and our feelings. I think sometimes copious amounts of something, like violence, can make us get used to it and just tune it out. But I think this tends to be more true for depictions of violence that don't have realistic consequences, you know, where the hero falls off a 10-story building and lands with barely a scratch. In terms of more realistic violence, I think Penn is right, that the way to not glorify violence is to show it for what it is. And in that final scene of Bonnie and Clyde, that violence has consequences. And no matter how many times I've watched it, the brutal and excessive violence always jolts or shocks me. In terms of glorifying criminals or getting the audience to sympathize with them, I think it's important to consider the time period. Were Bonnie and Clyde to have come out in 1934, it would feel very different. It might feel disrespectful of the lives of their victims and all those who had been affected by their sprees of violence. Or it might seem like it was just trying to capitalize off of the publicity generated by the couple's death. In 1967, a little over 30 years after Bonnie and Clyde had died, while still likely very real feeling to some, there would have been some distance from the actual events. The film was clearly a depiction of historical events rather than current ones. It could have offered maybe some nostalgia for the 30s, but more so it recognized the ways that themes, issues, and desires, issues of widespread violence, the desire for adventure, autonomy, freedom, and escape from poverty, all of these topics that were prevalent three decades previously were once again relevant. Glorifying the criminals at this period in time makes more sense because of the distance from the events. It's not saying that what Bonnie and Clyde did was good or meant to be emulated. Instead, it's, as we discussed earlier, meant to play into the mythic conceptualization of the couple throughout literature, film, and media. And I think this is even more true nowadays. I think it's also important to note that, while we might root for Bonnie and Clyde, the film repeatedly reminds us that their lives were not all fun and games, despite what Bosley Crowther might say. As the movie progresses, the two become increasingly battered and worn out, mentally and emotionally, as well as physically. They know they can't run forever. They know they are doomed. And in case that wasn't clear enough, as a consequence for their misdeeds, they are brutally and decisively killed. Movies are an essential form of historical memory. They not only tell us about history, they guide us in how to think about it and engage in it. In a film like Bonnie and Clyde, I think it's less important that the movie tells us who to root for, who was bad and who was good, 
and more important that it enters into and does justice to the history. We don't need Bonnie and Clyde to explain to us that we shouldn't rob banks or kill people. Instead, the film gives us a glimpse into lives very different from ours, and it does justice to that history by cultivating the mythic legacy left by those figures. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lens on History. For a list of sources consulted and further reading, watching, and listening materials, please go to lensonhistory.wordpress.com.